didn't say where, she didn't say when, she didn't say why, or bid me goodbye, and I'm as blue as can be. I know she loves another one, but she didn't say who, she didn't say which, she didn't say what, this fellow her guy that took my sweetie from me. I'm like a little sheep, and I can't sleep, but I keep trying to forget. My trifling baby's gone and left me all alone. I groan, my sweetie went away, but she didn't say where, she didn't say when, she didn't say why. I know that I'll die, why don't she hurry back home? Good evening, friends. You're tuned into the Talking Machine Hour here on WPPM 106.5 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I'm David Atlas, and joining me this evening, all the way from Bristol in the UK, is my friend Jonathan Holmes, prolific record collector. <laughs> hey, David. Thank you very much for having me here. Hello. Thank you for being here. That's quite all right. And thank you for bringing along all these sweet tunes. Mm. Um, yeah, so I've... Um it's going to be a bit of a British invasion tonight. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I feel, in a good way. Yes. Uh, of course. Uh, so, as you said, I'm a record collector, and I've decided to pick out some of the uh, best songs that I have, which was quite a difficult endeavor. It is. As, <laughs> it's just sort of well know. throwing darts in the dark. Yeah, yeah. So trying to find something that I thought that I could play that people will literally never, ever hear again, I think. Uh, because it is so obscure, especially over here. Even if they're YouTube savvy, maybe. Well, if they're YouTube savvy, it's all on there. But we I'm sure we'll get to that, that later. later. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. So, what was that? Uh, so that was uh, a song called "My Sweetie Went Away," uh, which was actually written in the early 20s, um, and it was re-recorded again or reimagined for the swing area. Um, so that was recorded by um, a band leader called Jay Wilbur. The vocalist there was a chap called uh, Sam Costa. Um, Jay Wilbur was a very, very prolific um, uh, recording artist. He organized dozens and dozens of house band sessions for the Dominion label, Crown, and various others. Um, and it was often just very, very talented studio musicians, um, in that case, reimagining songs for the swing era, like My Sweetie Went Away. And if you've heard earlier versions of that, it's completely different to that one which is a nice jazzy swing song yeah and a great vocal on that Mm. track as well very nice so um we should probably proceed with some more music shouldn't we i guess we should that's (laughs) the talking machine hour right okay um so the uh, the next track that we have is uh, a real real favorite of mine um this is a song by uh the ambrose orchestra Uh, now bert ambrose led uh what is probably considered one of the finest dance bands of his day 
in the US and uh, sorry in the UK and probably in the US as well. Mm-hmm. He played at the Mayfair Hotel and he employed uh, the best musicians. Only the upper echelons of society uh, went to dance there. It was a real, real exclusive place, the Mayfair. And um, his songs and his uh, recordings and arrangements are just absolutely uh, out of this world. They really are the best versions. Um, so this is a, uh, a terrific tune which was recorded by many, many artists. And it's uh, Blue Turning Grey Over You. smooth ending there <laughs> that's such a nice song i yeah. love i love that record it's, t- it's terrific ambrose is one of the first like single name big name artists huh before uh, elvis and madonna yeah well i ambrose. should i should like to hope so yeah. bert ambrose i think he was um he was one of those musicians that came out of the west end um a lot of the musicians that were playing in london at the time were had come from jewish families that had, had fled uh russia and europe and they'd set up shop in the uk um so ambrose along with many others you know had that kind of heritage mm-hmm. um and 
you know, it's really fascinating where all these band leaders came from and um, the heritage a lot of them had and, and the rest of it. But he, he led a really stellar band. And, um, yeah, you, you probably won't find better recordings of that. Just the superb, smooth arrangement. Yeah. Um, done by a chap called Ray Noble, I think may have been a Ray Noble arrangement. I who, think I've heard of that guy. Yeah, so he later went on to lead a band in his own right. Yeah. Uh, for the He was the house orchestra leader for the HMV uh, record company for many many years in the 1930s so that was an hmv record yes we just that remember. was yes yeah. all right and a very and nice one yeah interestingly <laughs> um because i was uh speaking to jonathan earlier um tonight's program is kind of unique because we're playing records that have been um pre-recorded as in these are um transferred by jonathan himself mm. electrically yes um and i don't know why don't you describe that process a little bit because it's not just as easy as you know hitting the record button when you play a record no right? no i wish so uh, gramophone records tend to sound pretty rubbish uh when you when you play them first time mm-hmm. um so i have a laptop that is plugged into my modern turntable and i record the song in real time uh, and then the song has to be declicked and decrackled and all the noise and the the hiss kind of reduced but not to the extent where it's it's killing the music so um it's a very kind of fine line between completely muffling a song and also keeping some noise in so that people can actually hear the music yeah um the microphones back then you know weren't the best so although they sound quite quite grand and roomy um they weren't recording anywhere near the kind of quality that of sound that we were used to so thankfully there's a lot of bandwidth you can just chop out kill out all together because <laughs> it's just empty noise right um, Some of which it. yeah which makes my job easy um so it's it's a very time-consuming process yeah i, I wouldn't call it easy <laughs> i'd probably say each track took about 15 minutes perhaps to transfer and yeah. and go through all the processes so it's a labor of love yeah there's some production um, involved there for sure yeah oh yeah and um you know it takes time but it's worth it because i think hearing a record like this uh, when some of the noise is, is you know done away with, uh, I think it helps the people to perhaps appreciate it more because people hear records and they just hear noise, so they don't hear what the music should actually sound like. Indeed, and one microphone, how about that? Yeah, so that record uh, that you just heard was actually recorded with a single microphone and a an entire dance orchestra of nine, well, 10 or 11 musicians mm-hmm. was all placed around the microphone uh, so that uh, they would all be heard in equal measure. And it is a very incredibly fine uh, art. I don't think people know how to do that today, really. Um, but they record in really grand halls and, um, yeah, a single microphone for the vocalist and the violins and the trumpets and everything. You know, it's, it's quite an achievement. Far out. <laughs> Definitely far out. Yeah. And, you know, these British records uh, are rumored to sound much better than American pressings, um, partially because I believe the, the UK controlled shellac um, shellac coming out of India was mm. the main source of uh, of that material. Yes, mostly yeah. ground up beetles for our listeners who aren't familiar with what these records are actually mm. made of. Yes, um, so having more shellac in there meant a higher fidelity sound. Apparently, yeah, some um, records can sound really quite good. Um, it depends as well if they were laminated as well. Yeah, so Columbia in the 1930s started laminating their records, which is like an additional layer of, of coating almost, and it makes it much more smoother. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the HMV records. Some HMVs can sound quite crackly. Um, I don't know there's all sorts of theories about why that happens whether it's because they were stored in damp conditions or whatever um, but it's it, there's no way of knowing because we'd have to find a record that was kept in a warm room for 90 years uh, well <laughs> I'd like to we'll circle back to this later as well mm. because uh, I that, have that a very 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 deep yeah that, I have sorry, a relevant r- rumbling off on a tangent no I have a great <laughs> relevant tangent to that actually uh, or, or yeah 
Um, but let's get to some some more music. Okay, here. okay. Um, so this is a song that was released on a um, German label, actually issued in the UK called Homacord, and um, the band leader was a chap called Bert Furman, who um, was one of four brothers. Uh, that uh, we musicians in London in the 1920s. Um, Bert is probably remembered uh, today for a group called the Rhythmic Eight, which um, mm-hmm. produced the finest hot jazz recordings that the UK uh, that came out of the UK in the late 1920s. Um, any record that has Bert Firm's name on is pretty much guaranteed to have um, some sort of pep and liveliness to it, because um, he just took a load of very good improvisers and they just played around an arrangement and stuck a few cells in there and released a song and they just churned out very very good recordings and they're not too hard to, to not too easy to to come by today unfortunately and mm. um you know Bert Firm's name is still quite popular um but yeah this is a song called uh, when the red red robin comes bob bob bobbing along <laughs> Cha-cha. Hey, that was fun, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> very, uh, definitely very perky. Yeah, that's uh, one way of describing it. Um, yeah, Bert Bert had a really, really top-notch band, and he just churned out records like that for often under pseudonyms, um, just for the general general public. Um, I say he's really well known for the rhythmic eight stuff. Uh, his brother 
Now let me get this right. Sid Furman led the first uh, radio dance band in London, uh, the London Radio Dance Band, mm-hmm. which was the precursor of the BBC Dance Orchestra. Uh, he also had a, a brother, Sam, who played classical music, and another brother, John Furman, who uh, played piano in dance bands. And John and Bert often led similar recordings, so they kind of swap around quite a lot. Very cool. Mm. Wow, and he got his start when he was 16. Yeah, he mentioned. was, he was uh, playing in a hotel... I think it was a Hotel Metropole at uh, Midnight Follies uh, as a band leader at the age of 16. So his he although he kind of started very, very young, yeah. um, pretty much by the late 30s, he dropped out of music uh, altogether. And he was only kind of rediscovered when he, you know, in the 70s and 80s because he lived to be quite an old age. And he was only really rediscovered later when discographers and record fans started contacting him going, hey, you're this guy that made all these great songs. That's um, wild. Yeah, and he, he wrote a Norse biography in the late 80s, which was unpublished, and I, I got hold of a copy of it, and I think he said something like, you know, if only he had made more detailed notes or perhaps appreciated what he was doing at the time. Yeah. Because all, all of a sudden, you know, 60 years later, everyone was going up to him and asking him about all these records that he made, and he could remember <laughs> a lot about it. Oh, how lucky he was, and we were, that he survived mm, to that point and got absolutely. to see the resurgence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I think it's nice that, you know, he got to live so long that at least he got to see this kind of music come back in fashion again. Because for many years, you know, in the 50s and 60s, it wasn't really popular because it was considered really old hat when people were listening to things like the Beatles. Of course. And, you know, so all of a sudden when tastes change again and people in the 70s and 80s started thinking hang on a second you know this was this was good music and we should appreciate the guys that were that were still left at the time so obviously your passion is uh british dance bands Mm, of the 20s and 30s right yes am i getting that right yeah and um i do want to inform our listeners about your youtube channel right off the bat here because Mm. it's um it's really loaded with treats here. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So I've been doing this for about 10 years now, uh, which seems like an awful long time. And I basically just do transfers of songs like the ones you're hearing tonight. And I pop them on YouTube with photo slideshows so people have things to look at, you know, mm-hmm. black and white pictures or whatever. Um, and I must have done well over 500 videos. There's a massive long waiting line of... Uh, songs which i need to get rounds uploading or whatever but it's a very time consuming process so i only manage one every few days um and yeah it's it's been reasonably popular i'd say oh so yeah far. <laughs> well it's popular with me i'll give you that at least <laughs> i've spent some time digging around on here and that's it looks cool. like uh you've gotten two and a half million other views as well yeah that's kind of crazy yeah uh, almost wow. at 2500 subscribers too even well so, well well yeah that's i mean it's been going for so long so you know these things stack up slowly over yeah. time <laughs> sure um but yeah if you pop into um google or youtube or whatever um pop jonathan holmes jazz in uh that's h-o-l-m-e-s the l is silent of course uh, jonathan holmes jazz and pop that into youtube and i should be the first link that comes up because there aren't too many other people doing this with my name so yeah i'll drop a link in the uh in the playlist of Excellent. this, of this yeah, program as good. well Magic. Okay. So I think we should move on uh, to another song now, which was recorded by a, a small group uh, called The Four Bright Sparks. And this was uh, 1930 or 1931, I think. Um, uh, the song is actually a composition of the band's pianist, Arthur Young. And um, it's it was I think it traveled to the US. It was one of those songs which made it on both sides of the pond. Uh, there's a really, really nice uh, vocal here by an actress called Queenie Leonard who made uh, a few films and she made literally a handful of a handful of records uh, in the 30s. Um, but the song is called uh, He's My Secret Passion. He's my secret passion 
begins when he passes the gate. He doesn't know it, but someday he will. He is my secret passion. I gaze for hours at the house where he lives. You can't imagine the thrill that it gives. I know I show it, but that's how I feel. He is my secret passion. I'm trying to find a That is just delightful. I, I mean, it has all the great ingredients for yep. such a perfect record. It is um, perfect. That the xylophone, perfect. the saxophone, Queenie Leonard's vocals, and just a really nice piano solo from Arthur Young. Um, really, really special. I love that record. I really, really do. Absolutely wonderful. He's My Secret Passion by the Four Bright Sparks mm. on what label was that? Uh, Columbia. UK Columbia. Columbia. UK Columbia. Yes, because it was uh, never released in the US. Not domestically, like, unfortunately. Like most, I think most things, I don't think anything was released over here. So, All right. We got a very special show Which for is our fun. listeners. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're listening to the Talking Machine Hour here on WPPMLP Philadelphia 106.5. By the way, I'm David Atlas, joined by Jonathan Holmes here, sharing a selection of wonderful 78 RPM rare British dance band records that he has taken the time to meticulously digitize <laughs> and restore for your listening pleasure here and on YouTube. Mm. Um, so I think we should uh, we should probably press on. There's so many songs I want to try and cram into this hour. Yeah, let's Because uh, I've sent so many songs to you, and I said, I'm not, are you sure you're going to be able to play all these? And you were like, mm, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll try our best. Uh, so, um, so the next song is by a group called the Blue Mountaineers, which was uh, actually a kind of offshoot of the Ambrose Band, um, just without Ambrose directing. A lot of the musicians tend to feature on similar recordings, so most of the Ambrose Band kind of feature on this, mm-hmm. although it's a completely separate studio band in its own right. It's just using the same pool of musicians um it's a bit of a strange one this but it's it's got some fun vocals uh, and the song is uh, sweet 16 and never been kissed
Why should 
that was uh, that dramatic. Was, <laughs> atmospheric is the word. Oh yes, of course. Uh, yeah. So uh, so we just heard Sweet Sixteen and Never Been Kissed by the Blue Mountaineers, and then after that uh, we heard a song called What Is This Thing Called Love, and that was recorded by Jack Payne and the BBC Dance Orchestra. Um, very very unusually uh, atmospheric uh, arrangements. Yeah. yeah, definitely moody. I think that was a Ray Noble arrangement. Um, again, this chap who we've talked about who w- later went on to lead the, the house band at the HMV uh, company. Um, I don't think you'll ever hear in a, a performance like that because it's quite usually quite a happy, yeah. reasonably happy song, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's proof that aliens exist and they've given us their music. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot what we're going to play next. Sorry, that's really uh, More space uh, music for our more Earth space music. Bar. Oh, that's it. I remember now. Um, yeah, so this is uh, a Duke Ellington composition, which was actually quite recorded quite a lot all by bands in the uk or they they took it and did some really good things with it unusually so uh it's very nice it's very uh, perky it's another bert Furman recording so it's going to be quite happy uh, and this is jig walk all right <laughs> the jig walk 
yeah, that was quite lively. Uh, again, you know, another really, really vibrant Furman recording uh, that just injects a lot of life and a lot of vigour into uh, quite a happy song. And of course, Jig Walk is all about people that, that do the Charleston and Jig Walk, as they were with their oh, crazy legs. That's that must about. be... Is- I just might not be keen on your jive, but I don't, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I've heard that term around here much. Jig walk. Yeah. Um, actually, we were just chatting about Furman while the song was playing. Um, obviously, Furman was uh, used for a lot of discographies uh, later in his um, in his life because he lived for so long. And um, back in the 20s, he had a big falling out with a vocalist named Eddie Collis. Uh, and uh, for whatever reason, although Furman had used Eddie Collis in a lot of recordings, when he was contacted by discographers and they said, well, who's this guy on your record? He strenuously, de- strenuously denied. He said, I never, ever use this man, ever. Um, even though it's just plainly obvious who is singing on this I record. That. So he was <laughs> he was quite a kind of, I don't know, embittered man, even perhaps into his later years. Um, but, you know. A man I, of conviction. Yeah, absolutely. And he stuck to it. Um, we're going to move on now to uh, quite a modernistic arrangement of uh, actually another song which was written very, very early on, I think, in the 1920s. Um, this was by a band leader called Race Dorita, and um, just like Bert Furman, Race Dorita um, was from a, a musical family. So he had two brothers, um, Al Dorita, who played alto saxophone and clarinet. Ray plays tenor saxophone and clarinet, mm-hmm. um, and his brother uh, Rudy Dorita uh, also played xylophone. So he was playing xylophone in the Four Bright Sparks record that we heard oh. earlier. Uh, he was also a drummer and percussionist and and, and whatnot. Um, so Ray Allen Rudy, really nice trio of brothers. Um, they produced some wonderful records uh, in the UK uh, in the late 20s and early 30s uh, and this is uh, Race Dorita's Ambassadors Club Band with My Man Oh, my man, I love him so he'll never know. 
All my life is just despair, but I don't care. When he takes me in his arms, the world is right, all right. What's the difference if I say I'll go away when I know I'll come back on my knees someday? For whatever my man is, I'm his forever. Yeah, so a really nice uh, modernistic arrangement of a song that was recorded uh, originally in 1921. Um, so by the time it was done in the late 20s, it was you know seven, eight, nine years old, and um, it's one of these things where it perhaps came back into fashion again. And they had an arranger write a really nice uh, arrangement for it. Yeah, um, the vocals there were done by a lady called Betty Bolton, who was a singer in the 30s, a uh, very stereotypical flapper girl. Uh, she was one of the first women on uh, experimental television. Oh, uh, so when the BBC were experimenting with television in 1936, she appeared on there. I think there's a recording of her somewhere of her face sort of singing, um, but you can't make out anything she's saying, of course, and it's silent. Uh, that's on the, really neat. Yeah, that's quite cool. And uh, again, she lived to a ripe old age, I think. And um, yeah, what a what a great vocalist and really really nice singer and very very uh, emotionally sung. I think definitely. Thanks, uh, <laughs> Yes, we're, we're all grateful. Right, so... Uh, Harry Hudson's Melody uh, Man. And this I love this song title. I'm going <laughs> to let you say it. This is a bit of a weird one. Um, it doesn't appear in any of the discographies. And I think it was uh, released and then withdrawn very, very quickly. Uh, so, scop- so copies of it are actually quite, quite scarce. Mm-hmm. Um, for whatever reason, I don't know why they withdrew it. Um, it's a very, very bizarre song. Uh, really nice jazz in it. Um, but the song is called Some Haunting Tune.
coming silvery moon that just did shine as bright as day. And it sure did make me swoon that I just thought I'd lose my way. <laughs> haunting i don't know if i Some would call that tune. a haunting tune it's a bit of a weird one uh the way the song is composed and the way it's played and it's just kind of very very bizarre and i have no idea why it was deleted from the catalog um that was an eight inch record on the um edison bell radio uh label um so it runs for a bit shorter i think than most 78s usually do um yeah, and, and a lot of fun. I just played a, uh, what I think it was a nine-inch record uh-huh. a week or two ago um, from the Emerson uh, label. Yeah. And do you know do you know why they were doing that? Um, why were th- There was a company in the UK called Broadcast that made um, eight-inch records, and what they did was they crammed the grooves on. So in theory, the eight-inch record ran for the same amount of time as a 10-inch record. Um, it didn't sound as good, but they were experimenting with Often it was kind of budget labels, so you'd buy a smaller record, it would cost less. Oh. Um, they sold records um, called Little Marvel in the UK that were five and yeah. a half inches across, and they run for about a minute and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, all sorts of sizes, really. I, mean, I think it was just experimentation. And some labels just had entirely eight-inch catalogs for, for whatever reason. Hmm. Um, diverse it, yeah well it makes it tricky when you're trying to find replacement sleeves now that's that's what i wanted because to get nobody to. makes eight inch sleeves well yeah um, well very few people well, do I'm, i think there's a chap in the u.s that makes them uh kurt nork i think that runs a yeah, that, uh, would, that yes, wouldn't surprise yeah, me yeah. but um no i've uh, often the sleeves are so tatty now and they're just falling apart yeah oh terrible um so yes trying to find another eight inch sleeve is quite tricky and it's funny because weird sizes probably attract collectors and at the same <laughs> time they revolt us because how yeah. does it spin on the shelf with all of my other beautiful 10-inch? Yeah, I know. Shalak. I know. Um, you can buy new 10-inch cards now, but there's obviously just no... Well, there are no 8-inch records around. They're only pr- probably from the 78 RPM era, so... Oh, I would I would question that, really? actually. Yeah, I actually... I, I think because I was trying to figure out why they were making... Why Emerson was making these 9-inch records, uh-huh. and I wound up seeing that there were... I mean, they are pressing vinyl records in, in all sorts of weird... Really? In weird shapes and, and sizes, too. Bring again. back the 8-inch record... I say. Yeah. <laughs> so I can find some nice sleeves, please. Yeah, Somebody nice sleeves. There. Yes. <laughs> Indeed. And and so I'm um, just going to nerd out a little bit here, and I've been meaning to pick your brain about this, mm. but how are you cleaning your 78s? Because Ooh. often the people who had them before us may not have even kept them in sleeves, or the sleeves may have decomposed onto the record. No, they, they didn't. And, and they were all smoking at home, and yeah. you know, all, the, all that Cooking. rubbish lands on them. How disgusting. Yeah. Um, so I have a uh, like a record washing. I call it a machine. It's not really a machine. It's just like a molded plastic trough with yeah. uh, two brushes on either side, and a spindle. And you pop the record on the spindle. Uh, has some distilled water in the the dish at the bottom. Turn the record through, and it brushes both sides. Um, pretty pretty quick. Um, no I, suds. No suds. No, just distilled water. Uh, because I worry about kind of leaving any kind residue. of residue. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Um, so I used to clean my records with a toothbrush. Uh, toothbrush okay. and, and um, water but um, it's tricky because you know if you don't use distilled water you're technically pouring 
water that has all sorts of minerals onto the record and you don't want that to stay behind as well so you know if you do use tap water i don't know what the situation is like here but back home a lot of the water is what they call hard so it's got loads of minerals in yeah um and you know if you don't wash that off pretty quickly you'll get deposits left which is is not fun for the record no. or for you then you're definitely going to have to use some suds yeah to get that so stuff it's distilled water and a bit of brushing and that's all you need really nothing nothing to it hmm. that <laughs> and uh, at least 15 minutes of post-production time to yes. clean up the pops huh? yes yeah digital and physical cleaning of course you know if a record's not in the best condition to begin with you're never going to get a decent sound from it that's that's true mm-hmm. and that's something i've been learning and the joy of having guest collectors on is they all bring these beautifully clean records and in your yeah. case clean transfers already and i'm like man i gotta <laughs> i gotta start passing up these really beat up you need to you need to have a clean record yeah um, because the deposits that were left behind when people played them with steel needles when a modern stylist touches that it just makes a click so all that click and crackle um mm. you know just builds up and builds up it isn't very Even nice. Even if you change the needle with every play, I don't yeah, know about Yeah, true, that. true. But they're, they're very durable and, you know, it's only if a record becomes very, very trashed that I think you start to have problems. If you play it with a good phonograph, I think you should be fine. Yes, yeah, so a well-tuned phonograph. Yes, always tune your well phonograph, oiled. kids. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> change those needles too if you're going to do that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, let's play a bit more music now. All uh, right. This is a uh, field recording, uh, which is curious because I know that in the UK, uh, sorry, in the US, they made uh, several field recordings with often black bands, and they took the recording studio out and they would record in the back of a in the hotel room or whatever. Um, this was a field recording done in Manchester in the UK, so it's in the northern half of the country, and uh, it was done in the Midland Hotel, which was a very very grand hotel. Um, I've actually been there to the room that it was recorded at. Uh, and I pulled out my phone and played the record in the room it was recorded at, which for me was quite a thrill. Uh, it's now a breakfast restaurant in this hotel, but it was fun. Please, I'd like to imagine <laughs> that people were eating breakfast. No, no, British they weren't. Breakfast. No, no, no. Uh, we're eating beans not. for breakfast there, beans right? Toast. And toast. I think it's a bit more tomatoes than that. Right? Yeah, fried tomatoes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. I like don't, tomatoes. Don't judge our cuisine. You say um, tomatoes, I, though. I, yes, tomato, tomato. Um, anyway, this is... Um, <laughs> Henry Hall's band, uh, who later became the BBC Dance Orchestra leader, this is his earlier band uh, that played at the Glen Eagles Hotel in Scotland, and this is I Lost My Girl from Memphis. Thank you. 
gal from Memphis, she sure was sweet and cute. There ain't no gal in Memphis can be her substitute. Each time I spoke of marriage, she'd start in telling jokes. She always had this answer. Tell me, how are all your folks? My girl, how could she fool me, sweet girl? I'll never forget. Oh, I lost my girl from Memphis. I think I'll take my life. No, I'll do something better. I'll go home to my wife. <laughs> that was hot. Yeah, mm. nice. Uh, so that was recorded in the what is now the uh, breakfast restaurant of the Midland Hotel in Manchester. Um, although Henry Hall's band was labelled as playing at the Glen Eagles, um, the chain which also owned the Glen Eagles, which is also a very prestigious hotel in Scotland, they play a lot of golf tournaments there, I think. The chain which owned the Glen Eagles also owns the Midland Hotel in Manchester. So Henry's band would travel all around the country playing at various hotels. And then he later became the uh, leader of the BBC Dance Orchestra after Jack Payne left. And he was with the BBC for several years in the 30s and then went on tour. And um, yeah, I think he went into something else in the music business. He lived until 1989, actually. He was very long lived. Um, and How again, was that? one of those band leaders that, that lived long enough to see his music come back into fashion. You know, which they is, say is wonderful. breakfast is the most important meal of the day. <laughs> so There's a great picture of the band uh, standing in this room. And uh, it's terrific because the band's quite small, but all the guys play about 50 instruments. So, so it's like really weird combinations as well, like trombone and bass sax. And, and uh, you know, usually people just, if they play multiple instruments, it's kind of reeds or just brass instruments right. or whatever. Right. Um, but on this, yeah, there was quite a lot of weird switching going on, which is, they were is, which is fun. The British <laughs> wrecking crew of the 1930s or 20s. Yes. <laughs> and a really, really talented, very small, talented band. Um, I was just going to find my uh, uh, discography um, because I want to see there's one guy in the band that plays uh, really like a very strange collection of uh, of instruments. Oh. While you're looking, I'll remind our listeners, you've been listening to the Talking Machine Hour here on WPPM 106.5 FM in Philadelphia. Um my guest here today is Jonathan Holmes. I'm David Atlas. I'd like to remind you all you can access podcasts of this program if you're listening across the ether and over the airwaves. You can tune in um, via iTunes or downloading episodes from my website. It's stereoatlas.com or just by looking up the title of the show, The Talking Machine Hour. Find me on Facebook. I'm DJ David Atlas. Uh, you might be able to find Mr. Jonathan Holmes as well if you look <laughs> him up online. Pop my name into YouTube or Google. I'm sure something will come up. Yeah, there's definitely uh, a lot of uh, sweet jazz videos here that Jonathan has posted on this YouTube channel. Mm. There's a reason you've got over 2,000 followers, that's for sure, <laughs> and over 2 million views. It's good stuff. Oh, well, thank you. Don't thank take you very my much. word for it. Go and subscribe. Hit that button. Absolutely. Yes. Yes, yeah. please do. Uh yeah, so I feel like we should probably uh, wrap things up, and um, I've ch- I've chosen this song specifically uh, for its title, which you'll find terribly amusing because it's uh, "Cheerio," which is of course the British way of saying 
Goodbye. Uh, and this was by a band leader called Billy Merrin uh, from Nottingham, played at the Nottingham Palais and recorded in London. It was one of the provincial band leaders that did very, very well in his career. Um, and Cheerio is his signature song. So at the end of every broadcast, he would play Cheerio. And ah. um, the song actually simulates the end of a broadcast. So I think it's a perfect way to end a radio that program absolutely with Billy perfect. Merrin. <laughs> well, before we go to the uh, breakfast cereal or Cheerio tune here, uh, I'd like to thank you again for joining me this evening. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for sharing these awesome 78s with our listeners and with everybody else and stopping in Philadelphia on your tour abroad. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening to all you people out there in Radioland and uh, have a good night, everybody. Billy Merrin and his commanders, and the boys are now fading out on their own closing number, Cheerio. <laughs> <laughs>